This is what he said that got him into so much trouble. At least it was trouble if you ask the people in the public relations department. Uh, in retrospect, the accountants might disagree with uh, the trouble, but this is what he said. We are very much supportive of the family, the biblical definition of the family unit. We are a family-owned business, a family-led business, and we are married to our first wives. We give God thanks for that. We operate as a family business. Our restaurants are typically led by families. Some are single. We want to do anything we possibly can to strengthen families. We are very much committed to that. Uh, those were the words that spoken by Dan Caffey, who was the chief operating officer of Chick-fil-A. Uh, and if you have not heard that paragraph from an interview that he did with the Baptist Press, you certainly got swept up in some of the aftermath of those words being uttered. Uh, they were printed, no pun about the cows on that. Okay, so, um, uttered. Okay, let's keep going, sorry. If you have to explain that, don't, just keep going. Okay. Uh, now, um, Kathy was interviewed uh, on, the, on a radio show, a Christian radio show, uh, about that. And then his words were picked up by national media outlets. And, and you, you know what happened. Um, he was immediately branded, Dan Kathy, as anti-gay for what he said. Uh, Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago, and Thomas Menino, the mayor of Boston, both said that Chick-fil-A uh, restaurants were no longer welcome in their city. Chick-fil-A, Rahm Emanuel said, does not share values with Chicago. Uh, then Mike Huckabee declared that August 1st was Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day. Did you go to Chick-fil-A on August 1st or did you try? My family tried. They didn't get a quarter of a mile within the restaurant. Uh, it was the single most profitable day in the company's history. In fact, it may have been the most profitable business day for any company ever. In fact, if you own a small business, maybe you should announce that you support traditional marriage too, especially if it's a slow month. This might be good for you. Now, that is not the sort of publicity that, uh, that Chick-fil-A was looking for, but it's one of the most recent episodes in what could be described as the most divisive issue that our nation is facing, the issue of uh, the legality of same-sex marriage. Uh, most of us in this room are on the side of those who are often described as hateful, intolerant, crazy, backward, and bigoted. Get used to hearing that about yourself. You're a bigot. Uh, we've been talking these days about marriage, and uh, it has been an expansion of Paul's message in, in Ephesians chapter 5. Today, it, because it's been so often in the news, what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about the issue of same-sex marriage. And this is going to be unusual for a couple of different reasons. One, it's going to be a different because, again, normally our pattern is to move systematically through books of the Bible. We have been doing that for, through Ephesians over the last several months. We're going to continue next week, Lord willing, in Ephesians 6, 1. We'll start there. That's our normal practice. But second, this is going to be a bit unusual because this is going to be less of a sermon and more of a lecture today as we're gathered. My hope is I want to equip you to think and to speak about the issue of same-sex marriage with more wisdom and more compassion and more humility and more certainty. Now, let me start here by reviewing, first of all, the, the state of things, uh, of the debate itself. The first gay rights organization in the United States was founded in 1924, but most people date the modern beginning of the gay rights movement to the Stonewall riots in 1969 in New York City. And since that time, in 1969, over 40 years ago, uh, we have gone an astoundingly fast and dramatic moral revolution in our country. In 1973, the American Psychological Association removed homosexuality from its list of uh, disorders, mental disorders. In 1972, if you had same-sex desires, you had a mental disability. In 1973, you didn't. Uh, and actually, since then, um, uh, we have taken a great shift. 
It used to be, to borrow our language, our vocabulary, it used to be a, a sin to practice homosexuality. Now it's a sin to believe that homosexuality is sinful. A sudden moral reversal. Uh, internationally, same-sex marriage is legal in the Netherlands, Belgium, Spain, Canada, South Africa, Norway, Sweden, Portugal, Iceland, Argentina, Denmark, and parts of Mexico. And in the United States, it is legal in six states. Massachusetts, Connecticut, Iowa, Vermont, New Hampshire, New York, Washington, and Maryland. Uh, of these uh, six states... Three of them enacted same-sex marriage in their legislatures, and three of them enacted same-sex marriage through judicial review of their, the state's laws concerning marriage. Now, in Washington and Maryland, two of the states I mentioned, the legislators passed laws making same-sex legal, same-sex marriage legal, but activists uh, have placed it on a ballot. It's going to be voted on in November, a referendum about whether or not it will uh, remain legal. Uh, Same-sex marriage is also legal in uh, Washington, D.C. Forty-two percent of Americans live in some sort of a state with some sort of legal same-sex marriage, same-sex partnership, rather. Civil unions, domestic partnerships, or marriage. Forty-two percent. Thirty-one states have constitutional amendments banning same-sex marriage. Uh, every time that an amendment has been brought to the people, it has won by an overwhelming uh, majority. Uh, in 10 states, uh, including our own, uh, same-sex marriage is forbidden by law. They are some that are working to have a constitutional amendment in Pennsylvania banning same-sex marriage. Uh, my understanding is I did not take Pennsylvania history in my New York State school. So uh, uh, my understanding is it has to pass in the legislature two years in a row before it can be put on the ballot as a voter referendum. And the legislature has yet to pass an amendment banning same-sex marriage. Um, on the federal level, uh, the Defense of Marriage Act, signed by President Clinton in 1996, um, again, here's an indication of the moral revolution, the man who enthusiastically endorsed uh, President Obama, not that long ago, signed a law defining marriage uh, as a union of a man and one man and one woman. Change. Um, well, the Defense of Marriage Act has been challenged in law. The, the Obama administration is no longer defending it. Uh, and doubtless, it will soon before, be before the Supreme Court. Um, our church, our own church, has a statement about the sanctity of sexuality. We adopted it. The, the deacons uh, at the time adopted it in 2003. It's part of the official documentation of our church. When you join, when you become a member, you receive our statement on sexuality. This is uh, what it says, among other things. Any attempt to legitimize homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle through legislative or executive action is unworthy of Christian support and should be actively opposed. It's our official statement. And, and statements like this, as I said, put us on the side of those who are closed, hateful, intolerant, unloving. You know, and, and in some ways... Um, to our shame, we have earned that reputation through uh, jokes or self-righteousness or anger. Um, we, we speak about sometimes homosexuality in a way that is unworthy of the Lord and unworthy of the gospel that we preach. I want to organize our time together around two basic ideas. The first thing I want us to do is I want us to understand how the Bible speaks about homosexuality. Uh, we're Bible people. We want to be rooted firmly in the testimony of Scripture. Then second, building on that, I want us to understand how we can speak about homosexuality clearly and carefully. Um, what do you say at work or what do you say in response to an article in the newspaper when the issue of same-sex marriage uh, comes up? And how do you speak about it in such a way that you're faithful to the Bible, but not unnecessarily offensive? What you say, if you're faithful to the Bible, will offend someone, but let's not be unnecessarily offensive. Uh, let's begin in, with what I imagine will be uh, some review for many of you with what the Bible says about homosexuality. The Bible consistently condemns homosexual behavior. Over and over again, from the front to the back of the Bible, the Bible consistently condemns 
homosexual behavior. Consistently and in strong words, homosexuality is an expression, homosexual behavior is an expression of our alienation from God and our fallen condition. Now, the Bible addresses homosexuality in particular in three very important places. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19. Uh, the holiness codes in Leviticus 18, they're called that because it's part of the law, the code of the law, and that's the part that's concerned with holiness. And the letters of Paul, specifically Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, and 1 Timothy 1 are the three places that he addresses the issue most clearly. Uh, Christians of all kinds, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, for the 2,000 years that the church has existed, up until the 20th century, held to this idea that the Bible consistently condemns homosexual behavior. Uh, Those who argue for the legitimacy of homosexuality today have to either revise what the Bible says or reject its authority in those places for us today. Here here are some uh, common reinterpretations. The most common reinterpretation of Sodom and Gomorrah is to say that the story is not about homosexuality itself, but about abusive sexuality. That the, that the men that went to Lot's door were looking, uh, the, the problem was not homosexuality, it was, it was rape that they wanted to commit. It was, it was the violent abuse that they wanted. Or, actually even more commonly than that, uh, the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah has been described as the sin of inhospitality. <laughs> God destroyed these cities because the men of Sodom violated the ancient tradition of hospitality. Does that sound strange to you? Uh, if that's the case, why did, why did Lot offer his daughters to the men if all they were doing was, like, was, was trying to be hospitable? Or if the problem was hospitality, why didn't Lot say, oh, you want to meet these guys? Here, let me introduce you, if that was the issue. It's true, it is true that sexual abuse is part of the story in Genesis 18 and 19. But Jude, the book of Jude, interprets Sodom and Gomorrah, and it says that the problem is not uncontrolled sexual desire. The problem is unnatural sexual desire. Now, when it comes to Leviticus 18, many want to reject this message because it's in the midst of the holiness code of the Old Testament. Have you ever seen or read the letter that somebody wrote to Dr. Laura, um, Dr. Laura, the radio advice columnist? It's been published online and maybe you've you've seen it. Um, Dr. Laura says that she opposes homosexuality on the basis of her um, belief in the Old Testament, her Jewish beliefs or Judaism. And someone wrote a letter to her asking her about the other Old Testament laws in the book of Leviticus. They say, uh, I understand, Dr. Laura, that you disagree with uh, homosexuality because of what Leviticus says. But Leviticus has some other things in it that I'm not sure about. And I'm writing to ask you questions. For example, the letter says, the Old Testament book of Leviticus allows me to sell my daughter. How much should I ask for her in today's market? And if my neighbor eats shellfish... Do I stoner myself or should it be a community event? And uh, the Old Testament condemns touching unclean animals like pigs. Can I play football if I wear gloves? Now, the point of this letter is to make Dr. Laura look foolish, obviously. As, as if Dr. Laura is going to read this letter and say, oh, I never thought of that. Oh, my goodness. They're trying to make Dr. Laura look, look foolish, but actually the, the author of this letter shows really how little they know about the Bible. If you're going to use the Bible to criticize someone's opinion, you should read it first. Uh, the book of Leviticus contains laws for the nation of Israel. Some of those laws in the course of time are done away with, and some of them are repeated in the New Testament. And in Leviticus 18, the comments about homosexuality are echoed in Acts 15. They come up again. Now, Paul's letters have been similarly questioned and critiqued. Some people say Paul is using vocabulary uh, that describes unequal, abusive homosexual relationships. And, and Paul didn't know anything about mutual, loving homosexual relationships. Or 
Paul didn't know anything about sexual orientation or Paul didn't know anything about genetics or Paul couldn't go as far as he wanted in granting freedom because of the ethics of the early Christians. And he was really bound by the culture of the church. And and if we follow the trajectory of the Bible, we'll see that homosexuality is a divinely sanctioned lifestyle. Those are some of the arguments that you will hear. We need to think clearly about this, so we're going to look at the text. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is where I want to direct your attention. And I'm going to take you to Romans 1 because it's a pretty comprehensive statement. And because Paul here does not use any of the normal vocabulary that could be used to dismiss his arguments. He's uh, speaking very clearly here about um, the issue in, in broad strokes. Now, Romans, uh, the book of Romans, as you know, perhaps, was a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He had not founded the church in Rome. He was on his way to Spain, so he thought, and he was hoping that the church in Rome would support him financially as he was going to go to Spain. So he wrote Rome. Uh, Romans is Paul's missionary deputation letter. I get these letters all the time. They say, Dear Pastor, I'm going to Botswana, would you support me? This is Paul saying, dear church in Rome, I'm going to Spain. I want you to support me. Here's the gospel that I preach. Just so you know where where I'm coming from theologically, he says. And he begins in Romans chapter 1 by talking about the universal problem that the gospel solves. That is the universal problem uh, that God is righteous and we are not. And look at verse 18 of Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Uh, why is God's wrath being revealed? Well, because of the godlessness and wickedness who, uh, of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men and women are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This is the basic indictment that Paul has for all human beings. The the basic indictment is that we have failed to glorify God and to thank him. All of creation testifies to the greatness of God, his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. They are clearly seen this morning in the songs that we sang. This is a theme over and over and over again about how creation testifies to God's great glory. And human beings stand convicted under God's wrath because we have seen God's glory in creation and we have said Though, though, though God, I can see in creation, God is worthy of all glory and worthy of all thanks. I will not glorify him. I will not thank him. In, in fact, instead, I'm going to glorify this statue of this beaver that I can carve. This, this cow, I'm going to honor him. The sun, I'm going to worship the sun and glorify the sun or, or the moon. Paul's describing here idolatry, or as D.A. Carson says, the de-godding of God. And all of us, all of us stand condemned under these verses. You may not have a statue in your living room that you offer sacrifices to, but there is idolatry rampant in my life and your life. Uh, Pastor Scott just put a sign in his office. It's, It's above his door. It's worth thinking about. It's a quote from Martin Luther. It says this, Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. That's what you worship, what you really want, whatever you really trust in, whatever you really dream about or desire, what you prefer to God, that is the object of your worship. It's your functional deity. And I can tell what your functional deity is by looking at your checkbook, your calendar, and your Google search history. And we are all condemned under God because we have rejected, we have refused to glorify him and thank him as he deserves. 
Now, verse 24, Paul begins to talk about the consequences of uh, the choice to reject God. Verse 24 says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So the first place, the first evidence of our disconnect from God is sexual sin. This is the first place that our rejection of God is is evident is in the abuse of one of God's greatest gifts to us. uh, The gift that is so central to our identity as men and women uh, created in God's image. Sexual sins, the first way that we see this rejection of God. Now, verse 26 tells us the consequences are worse. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, we'll come back to that, but I want to keep going here. This is not, homosexuality is not the final, nor is it the only consequence of our rejection of God. Verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, they invent ways of doing evil. Uh, They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do the very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, notice in verses 26 and 27, Paul here describes homosexuality without using any of the traditional Greek language. He condemns both the behavior and the desire. He talks about being inflamed with lust and he talks about indecent acts. Now, someone might want to argue that Paul here is talking about out-of-control desires. Again, not good, healthy, natural homosexual desires within committed relationships. That's a common argument. Paul is talking about out-of-control lust, hetero and homosexual. That will not stand in the text. Paul is talking about homosexual lust and homosexual behavior. Now, this passage should help us evaluate some comments that are often made about this issue. Some have said, if America approves same-sex marriage, we are inviting God's judgment on our nation. And verse 32 says, if you approve of these things, um, uh, you're condemned. But verse 24 tells us that sexual confusion itself is a sign that we are already experiencing the consequences for rejecting God. We're not inviting God's judgment by enacting same-sex marriage into law. We're just uh, uh, making uh, God's judgment legal. The Bible consistently condemns homosexual behavior. Now, there's one more thing that I should say about this passage before we move on. Romans 1 is uh, broad in addressing the issue of homosexuality. Um, As far as I know, the Bible does not speak about the cause of homosexuality in specific terms. And this causality is a place where people on both the left and the right get things confused or speak in overly simplistic terms. The Bible is not as simplistic as most people are when they talk about the causes of homosexuality. On the left, the answer often is, I was born this way. God made me this way. It's genetic. It's part of who I am. That's often the statement that's made. But uh, there has been no genetic link found to the cause of homosexuality, although people have looked for it and people claims have been made. There have been no evidence, no conclusive genetic evidence has been found. But even if it is, that does not mean that homosexuality is moral. There are lots of things that have genetic roots. Um, Alcoholism, for example. That that does not make alcoholism moral. God made me an alcoholic, don't judge me. 
right? On the right, we simplistically say to people, homosexuality is a choice. Homosexuality is a choice. You chose this. You just need to unchoose it. Don't, don't say that to anyone. No one who is a practicing homosexual says, I consciously chose this. Uh, don't look at people who are living homosexual lives or struggling with same-sex desire and say, I know what's wrong with you. You had bad parents or um, you must be an abuse victim. The factors leading to same-sex attraction are complex. They occur often without conscious choice. They're a mystery to science. They're a mystery to researchers. And they're a mystery to those who experience same-sex attraction. The Bible speaks in broad spiritual terms. Why is homosexuality found among humanity? It's one of the consequences of our universal rejection of God. But it does not speak in specific terms, and you should not either. The Bible consistently condemns homosexual behavior. Now, unfortunately, this is where many people who uh, uh, stop when they speak about homosexuality and the scriptures. They stop reading at Romans chapter 1, and they stop reading and thinking here, and then they go and picket funerals, and they yell, and they fight, and they argue. This is not where the Bible stops, though. There's something else that I want you to see about the Bible and homosexuality. homosexuality. Here it is. Secondly, Understand that the Bible offers forgiveness to all who receive them through Christ. To all who turn and trust in Jesus Christ. Do you know that every time the Apostle Paul mentions homosexuality, he follows it with the gospel, including some of the sweetest words in the New Testament about the gospel? Uh, You can find it in Romans. Now, Romans is an extended treatment of the gospel, so he gets to those sweet words in chapters 4 and 5. But flip over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I want you to see this. Some of the most um, beautiful ways in which Paul talks about homosexuality or the gospel follow here. And then we're actually going to look at 1 Timothy 1, 2, 1 actually as well. Verse 9, he says... In 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. Those two phrases are translations of the Greek words for both the active and passive partner in male homosexual sex. Verse 10, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Condemnation. You cannot be a Christian and engage in these things with uh, delight, with, with passion. Verse 11, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. After this long list of sins, Paul says, you've been washed and justified and sanctified in the name of Jesus Christ. There were former prostitutes and homosexuals and adulterers and alcoholics in the church of Corinth. They were there because of Christ, because they turned to Christ and were washed and justified and sanctified. Now, turn over here, 1 Timothy 1. The the news even gets better here. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul is, again, describing homosexuality in a long list of of sins. Now, in his argument here, he's talking about the use of the Old Testament law. We don't need to enter into that argument right now to understand uh, what this says about this particular issue. But if you look at verse 8, here he starts in 1 Timothy 1. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We know also that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. For those who kill their fathers or mothers. Now, Paul here is going through the Ten Commandments. Those who kill their fathers and mothers, that's the opposite of honoring them. For murderers, for adulterers and perverts, that's a word that Paul may have coined for homosexuality right there. For slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Now, 
Here's the sin. And now what Paul says. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith that are in love in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Those are sweet words. The message that Christ came into the world to save sinners is one that we have to master. We must master this message. And we must master it for a number of reasons. First of all, we have to master it because it's part of our faithfulness to Christ. Our chief message is not one of condemnation. Our chief message is not one that says that God hates you. That is not our chief message. And if that is the only thing we are communicating to people, we are being unfaithful to Christ. Our task in the world is not merely to, to, to condemn the world, to proclaim that the world is lost and, and worthy of rejection. Our mission is to pronounce the rescuing God of love and what he has done to rescue us. And you don't represent Christ well if you don't speak of God's rescuing love. People need to hear why they need to be rescued. That is true. But if all we do is condemn, we're not serving Christ. We're not speaking faithfully to what the Bible says. But the second reason that why we have to master Paul's call here, uh, this message that deserves full acceptance, is because we have men and women in our midst who struggle with same-sex desires, who are, who are living as homosexuals around us. That's why we have to master this message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, in his excellent little book, I, I cannot recommend it highly enough, Wesley Hill writes about visiting a church in Philadelphia, a good, faithful, gospel-centered congregation in, in downtown Philadelphia. And after he went to church there, he, he walked out of the church and he was um, exploring the neighborhood. And not that far away from the church was a place that he called Philadelphia's Gaberhood. <laughs> uh, I'd never heard that expression before, um, but it, uh, uh, it was an area where... Uh, with shops and, and restaurants and, and such that would cater to homosexual men and women. And he, he walked around, there were rainbow flags flying everywhere uh, and stores that targeted specifically a homosexual market. Uh, we lived in a, near a neighborhood like that in Dallas, uh, Texas, when we were there. Now, Hill wonders, he's walking around this neighborhood, the, the gayborhood, and, and he thinks to himself, I, I just came from a great church. It's preaching the gospel uh, talking about the, the, gospel, the, the love of Christ and, and, and sin. And, and then he walked into this neighborhood and he, he thought to himself, I wonder how effective that church is in reaching the men and women who live and shop in the, in the gayborhood. If gay men and, and lesbians in Philadelphia have any interest in connecting with God and knowing more about Jesus Christ, could they in that church? Now, now, unfortunately, they could easily find a church that doesn't uphold biblical faithfulness. And they, they could find a church where, that, where, that wouldn't, wouldn't challenge them about this. But I wonder about that church that's so close to them. More poignantly, I wonder about our church and, and how people who struggle with same-sex desire would, would feel about coming into our church. I, I think that we should support political movements that reflect our biblical understanding of the nature of marriage. But the greater question, the far greater question is this. How can we speak to men and women with same-sex desires about Jesus Christ? Uh, Wesley Hill writes about this, the challenge. The, the, the Christ that we preach for those who identify, uh, whose identity is infused with same-sex marriage, we preach a hard message to them. Because we believe that homosexuality is not an option for those who are trusting Christ. So if you want to follow Christ, 
You must either, as a, as a person living with same-sex desires, either commit yourself to lifelong celibacy or hope that through counseling and encouragement, your desires can change. Now, it, it happens, but it is so far removed from the normal ex- expectation of men and women with same-sex desires that it seems impossible. If we have any chance of representing Christ well to those outside the church uh, we have to master this message that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And some people think, <laughs> foolishly, that all we need to do is we just need to change some of the external things that if we uh, sing different music or if we um, dress differently or if we remove the name Baptist or the word church from our name uh, and we get some piercings and some more tattoos, that will make us relevant and attractive. In fact, um, we're gonna, you know, we should put on our website pictures of our elders smoking cigars and drinking beer, and that will bring people to the church, right? It'll make our church more attractive. Uh, fundamentalists and anti-fundamentalists both fall into the trap of thinking that what will make them effective for the gospel is our external signs: dress down, dress up, smoke a cigar, never smoke. Get a tattoo, cover them up. Pierce yourself, unpierce yourself. All, all we need, uh, get a new name. I don't know, change the name to Relevant Community or something. I don't know. Uh, uh, or stick with a good old name and that will bring them in. Both of those people are wrong and simplistic. What both of them need is the gospel to be buried deep, deeply in your heart. In comparison to how the gospel roots itself in your heart, I don't care what you wear to church. And I don't care what our name is. What I care desperately about is how deeply the gospel is rooted in your life. Actually, there's a more relevant thing than thinking about people outside who have same-sex desires. We have to master the message of the gospel for the people inside the church who struggle with same-sex desires. Men and women who are struggling and who keep it to themselves. Men and women who are members of our congregation. Married people, single people, young people, old people. Is Is your small group a place that celebrates the gospel and is able to speak about sin so well that someone who is struggling could could speak about it? Tonight when you meet with your small group, will you talk about sin and about Christ with with such uh, wisdom and such depth of of the gospel in your heart? Will you speak about it such so that if there was a man there or a woman there who's struggling with same-sex attraction, they, they they could look at you across the room and say, that's somebody I could go talk to. That, that, that's somebody who, who would, would pray with me. That, that's someone who would encourage me and, and help me. Brothers and sisters, there is no one, no one in the church whose sexual desires are completely holy and properly ordered. How many of us are here this morning? That's how many versions of perversions there are. All of us need to repent and to be transformed. Our commitment, and I know that we need to grow here, is to cultivate an atmosphere that is so infused with the gospel, that's so realistic about sin, and so exalted in Jesus Christ, that you can find encouragement and hope and help here, regardless of your struggles. You know, one of the ways that the gospel will change you is perhaps it will change you from being someone who makes crude jokes about gay men and uh, women into someone who it will, for whom it will be possible to pray with a young man, with a young woman who's desperate for help, desperate for someone to help them fight the battle for holiness. Our Lord was the friend of sinners. Why was our Lord the friend of sinners? Our Lord was a friend of sinners not because he was open, affirming, tolerant, and celebrated everyone. He, he, he told the woman, he said to her, go, sin no more. I mean, he, he, he was not the friend of sinners because he never spoke about sin or because he, he uh, uh, didn't care really. He was a friend of sinners because he came to rescue. Um, he, he was hated, he was rejected for it, but it was his consistent message. Now, 
we are far afield from our consideration of same-sex marriage. Uh, let, let me say, because the Bible so consistently condemns homosexual behavior, there is no sense in which we can condone, applaud, or prove of same-sex marriage. Now, in the few minutes that I have left, what I want to do is I want to move and, and change directions a little bit, and I want to help you speak about the same-sex marriage debate, and I want to do it by giving you six sentences or six ideas on which you can hang your thoughts. Now, I'm not going to explain them completely. I'm not going to explain them in unassailable ways. If you're sitting here and you approve of same-sex marriage, I will say these things, and to your mind may come, yes, but, and, and know that there are more things to be said about what I'm going to say than I'm going to do right now. But this, is, this will get you started, and you can find more resources about this um, easily. Here, here's a beginning point. All right? Number one, marriage is a cornerstone institution in our society. Changing it will affect us in ways that we cannot imagine. Uh, marriage is not just a private institution. It's not just a private relationship for two people. It's the principal organizing structure of our society. It brings countless benefits to men and women. Um, study after study after study has been done about how marriage affects society. One of the things that people say is, you're opposed to, you Christians, you Christians are opposed to same-sex marriage, but don't you know about divorce and how you Christians divorce so much? Well, uh, the statistics on Christians and divorce have been overblown. But they have a point. Acknowledge that and say, yeah, and look at what our society, the mess our society is in, because heterosexual marriage is so broken. Heterosexual marriage is uh, already has so many problems, and look at the consequences to our society. Uh, enacting same-sex marriage will not fix the problem; it will exacerbate the problem. Uh, people, I think, who, who want to talk about making same-sex marriage are ripping out pillars that are holding up the building of society without being aware or thinking of the consequences. Marriage is a cornerstone institution. Of society. We believe that God created marriage and it's for human flourishing. And one of the ways that we express love for our neighbor is by opposing same sex marriage. It is not an unloving thing to warn someone about a danger that is coming. And we love people by speaking about this issue. All right, second, gay rights and civil rights are not the same thing. Gay rights and civil rights are not the same thing. This is a, an often repeated claim. Same-sex marriage advocates say they want marriage equality. And they compare being opposed to same-sex marriage to racism. Someday, they argue, we're all going to look as bigoted and foolish as members of the Ku Klux Klan. Not too long ago, there was a magazine that art, article that argued gay is the new black. In other words, to be gay is just like to be black in the 60s and African Americans were arguing for their rights, so now uh, homosexual Americans are arguing for their rights. Well, there's a number of ways you can respond to that. One of them is to say that marriage equality actually already exists. A person who identifies as a heterosexual man and a person who identifies as a homosexual man in the state of Pennsylvania both have the right to marry from the same pool of people. They have equal rights. They both can marry someone who's over 18, someone who does not have a mental disability, someone who's not married, and someone of the opposite sex. They, they both have the right to do that. Now, the homosexual man will say, yes, but it's not fair because I can't marry the person I love. <laughs> Well, the Pennsylvania Constitution says nothing about love and marriage. And by saying, I want to marry someone I prefer, you are asking not for marriage equal rights, equal rights in marriage, you're asking for special rights in marriage. Vody Bauckham, who speaks well about this, actually, compares that argument to, to pacifists who want to join the military. I want to join the army and I want all the rights to come with joining the army, but I don't want to fight because pacifist, I'm a pacifist and fighting is distasteful for me. So you need to change the military so it's a pacifist organization so that I can join it. Well, the military by its nature picks up guns and shoots people. That's what it does. And, and, and you, you can't 
allow a pacifist in without changing the nature of the military. That's one way that you can talk about that. The other way that you can talk about this is, is, is by contrasting race and the issue of sexual identity. At many African Americans vociferously disagree with this, with this claim that gay is the new black. There is a difference between your racial identity and your sexual orientation. Racial identity is an absolutely unchangeable characteristic, and because it is unchangeable, it is immoral to discriminate against it. But sexual orientation is not unchangeable. Regardless of how uh, your opinion of reparative therapy, there are men and women who are former homosexuals who are now living happy heterosexual lives. And there are uh, self-professed heterosexuals who, during college or during some phase, have, have engaged in homosexual behavior. Third, arguments for same-sex marriage will produce unintended consequences. Arguments for same-sex marriage will produce unintended consequences. Same-sex marriage advocates dislike this. Uh, They find this argument distasteful, but they have yet to answer successfully how is it that their rationale for same-sex marriage could not also justify polygamy or incest. In fact, uh, some polygamists have sued on the basis of same-sex marriage laws for the right to marry two or three people. If marriage isn't just the union of one man of, of a man and a woman, but it's the union of, uh, of the per- two people who are in love, why couldn't it be three people who love one another, or four people who love one another, or a, a, a man, a woman, a man, and a fish? Why couldn't it be that if the union is there? Um, the the arguments have no uh, the arguments for same sex marriage. There's no reason why those things would not be out of bounds. I read a, not too long ago an article by a woman who wrote that her son, who is a convicted pedophile, um, she referred to his pedophilia as a sexual preference. Now, that phrase was used by a psychologist about pedophilia to describe uh, the fact that he didn't think that was curable, that that was uh, an incurable condition. But notice how the language has changed here. Homosexuality is my sexual preference. Pedophilia is my sexual preference. Polygamy is my sexual preference. It's unintended consequences here. Fourth, if you change marriage laws, speech and religious freedoms will be threatened. Again, um, this is not an argument that that some find tasteful or or satisfactory. But think about what happened in Boston and Chicago. Both the mayors had to retract their statement, but the first thing they came out and said was, no Chick-fil-A within our borders. It's an example of viewpoint discrimination. Dan Cathy would have been, if they, if they were able to pass this law, uh, they, uh, Dan Cathy would have been the victim of viewpoint discrimination. It is very likely that someday our church is going to lose our tax-exempt status because of our position on the sanctity of sexuality. I, I anticipate it happening. Uh, I anticipate very soon. Uh, soon. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I anticipate very possible that uh, a, a pastor will go to prison for preaching against homosexuality. It's happened in Scandinavian countries and in Great Britain. Um, Catholic charities, what Catholic charities across the country are closing their adoption programs because they won't place babies with homosexual couples. Uh, recently, a law was passed in California. I'm not sure if Governor Brown signed it into law. He probably did, but I didn't hear for sure. But it was a law that would make it illegal for a parent to take his teenage son or daughter to a counselor who will press them about heterosexuality if they proclaim themselves gay or lesbian. So in California, if your 15-year-old son says, I'm gay, you can't by law take him to a counselor who will say, let's talk about your claim and how it lines up with Scripture. The uh, United Methodist Church has lost tax-exempt status on property that they own in New Jersey because they wouldn't allow a homosexual couple to uh, um, use it for their wedding. Um, the list goes on and on and on here. Speech and religious rights are related to this issue because marriage is so embedded into our society. All right, number five. Fifth, every society regulates marriage in some way. Every society Marriage is not just a private affair. 
You cannot marry a child. You cannot marry someone with limited mental capacity. You cannot marry someone who is already married. Uh, marriage is a, pro- as a public institution, and every society, for its own good, regulates it in some way, and society should continue to do so. Now, finally here. Every citizen speaks to this issue from his or her worldview. You'll hear this criticism. People will say, well, that's just your religious belief. You don't bring your religion into the public square to talk about this. You're trying to impose your religion upon us. Well, the truth of the matter is that we live in a democracy, a a, a representative republic, and every citizen has the right to speak from his or her worldview. Is it only the atheists and agnostics who can speak to public issues? (laughs) No, we don't believe that, and neither do they. We don't apologize for speaking as Christians from a Christian conviction, but every citizen speaks and votes out of the well of his or her worldview, and we all have the right to do so. And remember, because you're Christians, speaking gives you another opportunity to proclaim and to plead with others for their health and their happiness. We plead with them to find life and hope and healing in Jesus Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are asking you for our own sake to do something miraculous in our congregation. That miraculous work that we want you to do, Father, is to drive the gospel deeply into our hearts and into our minds so that we exalt in Christ and so that we speak realistically about sin to one another, with one another, for one another, and also to those who are outside looking in. Father, I pray that you would grant us courage. Some of the uh, men and women here are are college students in very secular campuses where um, in, in some instances... Homosexuality is uh, celebrated and, and, and they risk being branded a, a bigot or intolerant for, for speaking. So I pray that you would grant them courage. Grant them the courage that manifests itself not in angry, anger or in uh, uh, um, hatred, but the courage that manifests itself in love and compassion as it speaks. Father, I pray for the men and women in in the room who this week in the lunchroom, there'll be conversations perhaps about this issue. Shape us so that we speak courageously and compassionately about this issue. Father, I pray for those in our congregation who have loved ones who are battling with this issue. Men and women who are part of our church, members of our, our congregation who This is their constant struggle as as they face temptation. Drive the gospel deep into their hearts, Father, so that they would love Christ more than they love the satisfaction of their desires. Actually, what we all need as, as sexual sinners. Oh God, transform our church. Transform us that we might proclaim the truth with clear words and loving hearts. Do that, we pray in Christ's name. Together we finish saying, Amen.